This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, something a little different, a little fun for our hot question of the day today. He is the caped crusader. He is the dark knight. He is Batman, and he made his debut 80 years ago tomorrow. Think about that for a second. How many things do we have in popular culture today that are 80 years old? How many things do we have in popular culture today that are more than 50 years old? Not many, and yet there's something about... This character that has had a lasting impact on generations of kids and adults even, that this character is still around today in different versions, right? Different people, different comics, you name it. But yeah, 1939 was the debut of Batman. So we're going to be talking to an expert. If you can believe it, yes, we found one. We found an expert on Batman who's going to be talking about how relevant and what it is about this character that has kept people so fascinated for so long. But to have a little fun on a Friday, we thought, let's ask you for our hot question of the day. Who was the best Batman? Was it Ben Affleck? I'll kill her! Okay, I gotta tell you right now, that is not my vote. Or was it Michael Keaton? It's just something I have to do. Why? Because nobody else can. That's my vote right there. I'm just telling you right now. Uh, Or perhaps you think, and I know a lot of people are gonna think this, was Christian Bale. If you're working alone, wear a mask. I'm not afraid to be seen standing up to these guys. The mask's not for you. It's to protect the people you care about. Ah, yes, that'll be a popular choice. Or maybe you're going to take this thing old school and you're going to pick Adam West. It was noble of that animal to hurl himself into the path of that final torpedo. He gave his life for ours. Okay, that's a different kind of Batman, right? There's a lot of camp involved in that one there. So who was the best? Who was the best Batman? And we chose people who had to have like more than just one time that they played this role. Okay, that's why there's no Val Kilmer. There's no George Clooney. We had to pick people who had repeat appearances as Batman. Although I know purists are going to argue that when it comes to Ben Affleck, he wasn't actually in a Batman movie. He was in Batman versus Superman and he was in Justice League. But you know what? That was twice. So we're going to count it. Who was the best Batman? Was it Ben Affleck, Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Adam West? Who do you think epitomizes that character? That's our hot question of the day today. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. You can, of course, go online to Twitter and cast your vote there. You'll find it at simisarah980 and at cknw. And if you want to perhaps give me a call and make your impassioned pitch for who you think is the best Batman, I would love to hear your rationale and reasoning for this. You can give us a call on our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. Well, this is a story we are definitely going to be talking about throughout the day today because we are expecting some developments in the next couple of hours in the SNC-Lavalin situation. We hear, we're hearing that Jody Wilson-Raybould has submitted an audio file of a recorded conversation to the House of Commons Justice Committee. Let's find out what that is and what has been going on. Joining us now is Amanda Connolly, who's our global news political reporter in Ottawa. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This came as quite a surprise this morning. What do we know at this point? 
This did. So this was originally a report from CBC News, I should point out, first of all. Yes. Global News has since confirmed that and more, noting that uh, there there was an audio file uh, shared by Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former Attorney General, with the House of Commons Justice Committee as part of this package of material that she had volunteered to submit to them when they refused to invite her back for a second round of testimony on the SNC-Lavalin affair. Now, we don't know what actually is in that audio file or what conversation it may have been recorded of, but we do know so far that uh, this appe- the, the plan right now is for this to be released as part of the package of materials, roughly 44 pages long, that we are going to be getting a look at later today. So we're hearing roughly between about 3.30 and 4.30 this afternoon, and, and the Liberal chair of the committee, Anthony Housefather, uh, did confirm that this will be released publicly later this afternoon, but would not give a specific time for that. Right. So uh, tw- 12 th- uh, 3.30 your time. So for us, it would be over the lunch hour. So between 12.30 and 1.30 our time. Is that right? Yes, so that would be 3.30 and 4.30 Eastern is what we're hearing so far. Okay, so what is the process, Amanda, that they have to go through here to release this information? Like, why would it take that long? So this is really where it starts to get a little bit interesting. And this is, again, where Global News, we got a little bit more information about this story this morning. So normally what happens when this kind of information is submitted to a committee, if it's submitted in only one of the two official languages, the committee then goes through a process to translate that material because you do have operations on Parliament Hill that are conducted equally in both languages. So normally when that's the case, uh, the release of that material to committee members will not happen until translation is complete. What we're hearing happen here, and I spoke with a source who was explaining this earlier today, is that there had been an attempt by the opposition members to ask the committee for unanimous consent, so basically to have all members agree that the material could be shared internally among committee members prior to it being released to the public when translation was complete. Now, we don't have a lot of details about this, so again, I should caution there, but again, what we're seeing, what we're hearing so far is that two Liberal members of that committee have been refusing to basically respond to that call for unanimous consent. So they haven't said no, but they also haven't said yes. And that means that the members of the committee all in, so all of the members there, have not been able to see any of the material here. It's currently with the clerk of that committee, who's kind of the administrative head who handles all of the, the process and things like that until the translation completes. And once that happens, we're gonna, there's going to be about a 45, 30 to 45 minute window between when it, the information will be shared with the committee and when it will actually be posted publicly. So it's going to be a, a very exciting afternoon. We're going to be seeing yes. a, 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 potentially a lot more information here from Jody Wilson-Raybould about her original testimony and some of the challenges that were that have been raised to that by people who appeared after her. Right. So let's reiterate that as well. So the information that she provided here, was it to bolster her previous testimony? Was it to rebut testimony that we heard like from people like Gerald Butts? So that's the suspicion right now. Again, there's been very little said about exactly what's in here. And even the the, the individual that I was speaking to today, who does have knowledge of, of what's going on right now at the committee, was saying that they, there's, again, there, it's not clear what is actually in that package of material until it will be released. What we're hearing, though, is that she had said publicly when she announced that she would share this additional material is that she wanted to basically clarify some of the points that had been raised by those who spoke after her at committee. Now, of course, there were a number of individuals who did that. One of them, as you mentioned, was Gerald Butts, the former principal secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We also saw the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, who has since resigned, uh, was also one of those ones who came back and testified following her original testimony. So we would expect to see if she's if she's looking to... Pardon me. If she's looking to kind of contradict some of the the evidence that was put forward by them, 
we it, it would be likely that it may it may focus on some of the the questions that were raised by those two individuals. Right. So when she testified, and I'm trying to remember all the details there, Amanda, did she ever talk about phone conversations or had there ever been any indication prior to this that something might have been recorded? That something might have been recorded? No, that there were phone conversations and in-person meetings. We did know that. She laid out the details of roughly 10 phone calls and 10 in-person meetings with really a variety of officials, both uh, people who are working on the political side of things as well as bureaucrats on this issue. And so there really is a, a, a wide variety of what this recording could potentially be about. We also don't know, we have not, uh, there's no confirmation at this point that she herself is on the recording. We know that she has submitted a recording to the committee, but there's been no indication or proof at this point that she is one of the people who is party to that. For all we know, it could be anybody else as well. Right. But wouldn't she have to be though, in order for that to be legally recorded? Uh, I think you, you. I mean, again, there, there, the meetings and the phone calls that she was detailing happened with uh, herself, with members of her staff, right. uh, across this kind of time frame as well. So, the, you could potentially raise the specter that maybe someone would have given her a recording that she could also share with the committee. So, again, there's very little uh. information right now. We don't have any confirmed indication of what is on that recording, but there is a wide possibility of what it could potentially be based on what she has described so far. Okay, and this is quite unusual for a Friday, isn't it? Because normally Friday is a quiet day in, on, in Ottawa. Well, it depends on the week. We do see this sometimes when there is a big... A big, big item or kind of something that, that might, uh, you know, kind of consume focus during the course of the week that will be dropped in on Friday afternoon or late into the day on Friday. And so this this certainly is um, it's not unusual to happen in Ottawa. We do see this kind of thing happen where a big, big news items will drop late in the day. But generally, when that happens, you, you do have to question why that's the case. Why wouldn't this have been done earlier? Yeah. And why wouldn't it have been done particularly prior to? You know, the weekend coming in when you would have a lot more opportunity to have people come onto shows to ask questions and things like that. So that will certainly be one of the questions that will be on people's minds today. Oh, it definitely is on mine. Okay, thank you so much, Amanda. I know you're going to have a busy afternoon. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That is Amanda Connolly, our global news political reporter in Ottawa. Uh, shots were fired. Um, the male and female was injured. Um, we're still trying to determine at this point uh, exactly what caused his injuries. They also found a female who also suffered from injuries. Both those individuals were taken to hospital and both, uh, unfortunately, have now been pronounced deceased. That is Ron McDonald. He is from the Independent Investigations Office of BC. And that was a press conference held about half an hour ago or so. He was confirming that two people, a man and a woman, have died following that police situation in Surrey uh, that unfolded early this morning. And it was a lot, a huge police presence that were on the scene. Uh, we want to get more information about what happened and what's going on right now. Uh, Janet Brown joins us now. She's Global News senior reporter, and she is near the scene at 133rd and 98A Avenue. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Uh, things are really de-escalating now that we uh, know what have ha- has happened here at the scene. Uh, but earlier this morning, there was a massive police presence. When I first arrived, I counted at least 18 police vehicles. Members of the emergency response team were walk- walking around the neighborhood in their camouflage outfits, holding machine guns. 
it was pretty scary for a lot of people living in this area and just waking up to that. But many of the residents I talked to, Simi, had heard gunfire overnight. This all started last night, we're told, uh, by Ron McDonald, the chief civilian director of the Independent Investigations Office, that it started last night at 9.30. Surrey RCMP getting a call about a serious incident unfolding. But members of the ERT and Surrey RCMP were not able to enter this home until 7.30 this morning after getting a court order to allow them to go into the dwelling. And when they went into the home at 7.30 this morning, Ron McDonald says, this is what happened. And here's some more of his news conference and what he had to tell reporters at 10 this morning, Simi. About 9.30 last night, the RCMP received a complaint uh, about a hostage-taking man who had taken a woman hostage. Uh, They responded to uh, the address here uh, near 133rd Street in Surrey. Um, Eventually, uh, they received a warrant uh, to enter the dwelling. And at 7.30 this morning, members of the emergency response team entered the dwelling. There was an interaction between the police and a male occupant uh, or a male uh, present in the home. Uh, Shots were fired. Um, The male and female uh, was injured. Um, We're still trying to determine at this point uh, exactly what caused his injuries. Um, They also found a female who uh, also suffered from injuries. Both those individuals were taken to hospital and both, uh, unfortunately, have now been pronounced deceased. As a result of the interaction between police and the individual, uh, the IIO was called in this morning and we are now on the scene conducting an investigation to determine what occurred in the matter. Any questions? Do you know who fired the shot that killed the the female and the male? Um, We're not sure if the female was killed by shots. Um, We're still trying to determine what caused her injuries and what what led to her death. Um, We do know that police took shots, but we don't know if they're the ones that caused injuries to the male. Um, We're still trying to determine that. It's still obviously very early in this investigation. So lots of unanswered questions here, Cindy. Still very early, of course, in the investigation. Uh, Police still uh, heavy presence, fairly heavy presence, not as much as it was this morning, mind you. Um, I'm still about a block and a half away from this house where it all unfolded overnight. So I can't really see the house itself, but I can see the police officers, members of the IIO uh, arriving on scene to begin their investigation and take control of the situation. So a very uh, unfolding situation right now, a very sad situation too, Simi. The neighbors, as I say, that I've talked to this morning, they just can't believe what happened here overnight, even though they heard the shots fired and that sort of thing. They knew it was a serious situation. To find out that two people in your neighbourhood have died is very unsettling, it's very upsetting, and it's very, very sad. Oh, I could imagine. Yeah, that's awful. Any indications, Janet, was this address known to police? Had they been there before? Did the neighbours say anything about that? Uh, we haven't been able to get any of that information. Surrey RCMP very limited in what they are saying so far, actually, Simi. They've just said, uh, they've just put out one news release uh, earlier this morning saying it was a serious incident, not many details at all uh, whatsoever. Neighbors say the house may have been rented out to some people, but they're not really sure either. So, as I say, lots of unanswered questions here. And, yeah. you know, Simi, you think about what happened earlier this week in Surrey as well. Three people dying in that terrible car crash. It's been quite the week uh, for Surrey RCMP and uh, members of this community in general. City Council, too, dealing with with all of this sadness this week and tragedy this week. Oh, that is so true. That's right. It has been a tough week there for sure. Uh, Any indications then, Janet, when police might provide another update on this? 
Uh, that's a good question, too, Simi. Uh, as, as you know, we just heard from Ron McDonald yeah. with the IIO. Uh, in terms of Surrey RCMP, I'm not sure. They apparently are working on some sort of update, but when we may be getting that, I'm not sure. Uh, let me tell you something else, too, before we uh, yeah. depart here, Simi. Um, when I first arrived on scene this morning, there were a couple of people obviously standing around, and I talked to two young men, uh, probably late teens, early 20s, uh, red eyes. They had said they had been up all night, and um, I asked them if they would be willing to chat with me, and they said no. Uh, but I did find out uh, that it was either one of their loved ones or both of their loved ones or somebody they knew who had died in that house. And I was just nearby when one of the RCMP officers approached these two young men and said, I, I believe what he said to them is that... Uh, somebody is alive at least one of them was alive and there were tears of joy at that point and then they took off running and the officer said to them do you have a ride to the hospital and uh the officer ran after them so i'm assuming he drove them to the hospital wherever uh their loved one was but that was pretty emotional to to see that and uh they had been up all night they had been up all night standing not far from the house, waiting for word on what was unfolding. So it's it's tragic, wow. so tragic, that, tragic, tragic. And that's because, just to recap then, the police were called to that area last night. Is that right? And we don't know who called uh, the police, whether it was a neighbor, whether it was somebody inside that house. But at 9.30, they received the call that there was, quote-unquote, a serious incident unfolding. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point in time, we didn't know it was a hostage taking, but uh, you know, when you have the ERT rolling in, an armored vehicle, etc., yeah. etc., et it was obviously very serious. We didn't find out till early this morning that it was indeed a hostage taking. So I'm sure we will be getting more information yeah. as the day wears on Simi. All right, Janet, thank you so much for that report. Thank you. Appreciate that. That is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter. She's uh, near that scene there, right near 133rd and 98A Avenue in Surrey. How many times have we heard that vote in the last couple of months, especially a vote that doesn't go Theresa May's way? Once again, British lawmakers have rejected the government's divorce deal with the European Union. This morning, the vote was 286 to 344 against that withdrawal agreement that has been struck between Prime Minister Theresa May and the European Union. That's a defeat of 58 votes. This was supposed to be do or die. It was supposed to be the final, final moment when people could vote for Brexit and get this thing going. Theresa May told the House that she is disappointed with the result. It should be a matter of profound regret to every member of this House that once again we have been unable to support leaving the European Union in an orderly fashion. The implications of the House's decision are grave. The legal default now is that the United Kingdom is due to leave the European Union on the 12th of April, in just 14 days' time. That is not enough time to agree, legislate for and ratify a deal, and yet the House has been clear it will not permit leaving without a deal, and so we will have to agree an alternative way forward. The European Union has been clear that any further extension will need to have a clear purpose and will need to be agreed unanimously by the heads of the other 27 member states ahead of the 12th of April. It is almost certain to involve the United Kingdom being required to hold European parliamentary elections. On Monday, Monday, this House will continue the process to see if there is a stable majority for a particular alternative version of our future relationship with the EU. Of course, all of the options will require the withdrawal agreement. 
Okay, so that's Theresa May this morning. And you may be like, okay, why do we pay attention to this story? I mean, it's over in the UK. It is a fascinating exercise in democracy that seems to go around and around in circles with nothing really being accomplished. We have a very similar system. I mean, something like that could happen to us with these kinds of crazy votes that have been going on over there. Let's talk more about what has happened. Joining us is Alex Thompson, Chief Correspondent for the UK's Channel 4 News. Alex, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Were you surprised by this vote this morning? Nope, I wasn't surprised. I don't think anybody was surprised. Uh, she went into it thinking that she still, I think, in her heart of hearts, knew she didn't have the votes for it, but they'd uncoupled it. This was just taking the main motion um, and, if you like, separating it from a political declaration. In other words, you were voting on the May deal, but you were no longer voting on how the political arrangements with the rest of the EU would work out if this went through. Now, I'm sure that's about as clear as mud for your <laughs> listeners. Um, take great comfort in that. It's just as clear as mud to everyone in the UK. Well, that's somewhat reassuring, I guess. Didn't she finally, though, get a few of those um, people who were against her to come on board? Like, didn't Jacob Rees-Mogg finally get on board? Didn't Boris Johnson finally say and Dominic Rabb say they were finally going to vote for this? They all did, but all that's done really is detonate their chance of becoming leader of the party should there be a leadership contest, of course, and that clearly is on the cards now. What's really happening is there is that the, the executive, the prime minister, she tried once, she failed. She tried twice, she's failed. She's tried three times, she's failed. Now, the parliament itself uh, is really going to galvanise. There are all sorts of plans in play to get to what parliament thinks could possibly be a fudge, a compromise, an arrangement with the EU which would command a majority in the House of Commons. Once that happens, the dam really breaks and you move forward from there. But there's no question the executive, Downing Street, the Prime Minister, have lost and lost badly in this process. Shouldn't that kind of effort that Parliament is making to get this together, shouldn't that have been made like, you know, a year ago, two years ago? Oh, of course it should. I mean, she's roundly criticised by all sides of the Prime Minister for going and setting in motion the Article 50 process way, way, way too early, when it, everybody could see Brexit is not a party political problem. It, it's, it's all across, cuts across all party allegiances, all alliance. Party system can't handle it, can't deal with it. What you do is, you don't start the Article 50 process, it, the criticism runs, you don't do that. You get a coalition of different voices, different uh, parties together and start working on compromise from the get-go. That's the exact opposite of what she did. She set the clock and went for a party line. Right. So she didn't do that at all. So what happens now? I understand the European Union has said we are prepared for a no-deal Brexit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, take everything the Europeans says with a pinch of salt. They make these things. We're into a negotiation. It will all come down to the 11th hour. If you think that going out, if anybody thinks that going out without a deal is a problem for the UK, it is a huge problem for our near, dear neighbours, the Irish Republic. Do the 27 member states of the EU really want to detonate the Irish economy? And it would do that within a matter of hours and days. If they crashed out. Why? Because Ireland relies hugely on agricultural produce. It goes north through Northern Ireland, across to mainland and out into the EU via the tunnel. Um, it's a huge section of the Irish economy. If we crashed out, yes, it's a problem for the UK. Of course it is. But it's a huge problem for Ireland. And it's none of the Irish fault. They didn't ask for this. Are Donald Tusk, John Cord Juncker really going to go over that cliff? 
Oh, you know, you said you said this is a uh, coming down to the eleventh hour. Now I'm confused because isn't this the eleventh hour? Like when is the eleventh no, hour? No, this is politics. It's a negotiation. There's no such thing as an eleventh hour. They talk about eleventh hour. They set these things and then they change the rules. That's politics. No kidding. The rest of the world has been watching this, and we are all very confused. How do the British people feel about this? Uh, confused, angry, frustrated, but mostly bored to death. Bored to death. Bored to a level of deep boredom from the planet, boring that you cannot imagine. Um, they want out. The business community wants out. Business, of course, doesn't like uncertainty. They want. The, they wanted this deal just to get out. I mean, regardless of what you think about whether you think we should be staying in, coming out, having one foot in each camp, I don't know. But overall frustration that, that nothing is moving. But um, you know, there are movements in Parliament to, to do a deal which is a bit like the EC. Um, that we went into in 1973 is a bit like Norway. There's a big, uh, quite a big movement in Parliament to have this all go to a people's vote to be ratified uh, by way of another referendum. That's all gaining momentum. And that's where that's where the, that's the big game in town now. And that starts in Parliament on Monday. All right, then I'm sure we'll be talking to you next week. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Not at all. And thank you very much for that very colourful interpretation of what is happening in the UK today. That is Alex Thompson, the chief correspondent for the UK's Channel 4 News. What did he say? Boring, boring, boredom, the whole thing. That's how the British people feel about this. Meanwhile, Global Affairs Canada has put out an alert. They are urging Canadians who might be in London today to avoid any kind of uh, Brexit demonstrations. There is concern and there have been some demonstrations kind of uh, in and around the Houses of Parliament already today. Uh, so they're saying avoid those. They are concerned over they may turn violent, something something bad might happen. Uh, so for tourists, watch out for that. But other than that, it just seems like things chug along no matter what is going on in Parliament. Have you filled out your speculation tax form yet? I mean, the deadline is just a couple of days away. And yet we know sizable number of British Columbians haven't done that yet. To get an update on this, we are joined now by Richard Zussman from over in Victoria, our global news legislative reporter. Hi, Richard. Hi, Sue. How are you? I am excellent. It's a beautiful Friday here in the capital. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I take it you have filled out your speculation tax form then? I have. So I wasn't going to do it because I wanted to see what would happen if you didn't do it. No. And then my wife, Lisa, would have killed me. So I did it. (laughs) It's done. It took three minutes, but a lot of people haven't. Based on the estimates we have from the province, there could be as many as 190,000 people, Cindy, who haven't done it. A huge majority of those people won't actually have to pay the speculation tax. They just haven't got online yet to declare that they should be exempt from the tax. Okay, and does the government have any idea why that is? Like, is it people just not knowing about it? Do they ignore the forms? So it's the government seems happy that they have this 88% turnout. But how I see it is they're going to have a pretty big logistical problem here trying to sort through the issue and reminders and potentially additional reminders. I think part of it is when the letters came out, people could have tossed them into the recycling bin. We know there's been a lot of confusion about the tax. People have spent a lot of time on the phone hotline, sometimes getting answers, sometimes not getting answers. That may contribute to all of this. Could be some snowbirds. I've received a lot of emails from people living, uh, living down south that you know, their primary residence is BC, but they're down south for a few months during the winter. They haven't received their mail yet because they're still away. So I think it's a combination of all those factors. Uh, and the province says 
if you don't get your form done by April 1st, nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to get a reminder in the mail saying you have to go declare. If you don't do it at that point, you will get a bill. But if you're not supposed to pay the bill, you can then just, again, declare and not pay the bill. But it seems like a big bureaucratic mess at this point. It certainly does. So let's say you aren't going to pay it. If you get a bill for tens of thousands of dollars, that is going to freak some people out. It sure is. And I think people are already confused, Cindy, about why they're getting this declaration letter. That's the one thing I didn't mention. That may be the reason why people aren't filling it out as well. They don't understand why they got it. And, you know, this is negative billing. So every single British Columbia in the tax zone, 1.6 million of us, received this letter. And I think most people say, oh, I don't have to say the speculation tax. I heard about it on the news. Why would I fill out the form? You have to fill out the form to say you don't have to pay it. So I think even in a reminder letter, people may be confused. And then when people get the bills, if, they, if it gets to that point, they're going to be completely confused. And I think there is some concern internally that these people, by accident, may pay these bills because they're confused oh. about the issue at stake. And then, at that point, the government needs to figure out a way to reimburse them because they are trying to address an issue, right? Housing unaffordability is a big issue. They need to try to find more rentals in the market. So they're trying to do all of this through the speculation tax. But I think it's led to a bunch of confusion for people as well by the way that they've gone about it. Right. Okay. So is there any indication that there could be an extension for people on this? No, there is not going to be an extension. I asked Finance Minister Carol James about that yesterday. There's concerns from people in the community of Belcara about their situation. They've asked for individual exemptions around these cabins that they have that they don't believe are rentable. Uh, the province says they're looking into it, but it doesn't sound like Belcaro is going to get an exemption. It doesn't look like there's going to be an extension. The only real extension, though, Cindy, is the fact that people are not going to be punished if they miss the April 1st deadline. That's a change in language. I've heard from a lot of people who called into the hotline and were told they were going to get fined if they didn't get their form in. Really? The finance minister is selling a very different story. There's not going to be a fine. They're going to send in these reminder letters. You're not going to be punished if you miss the deadline, but she's still encouraging people to go fill it out. Yes, I mean, I was, I was surprised. And I got a bunch of similar emails around the same thing, that they've been told on the hotline that they were going to get fined if they were late. And, that, and from the finance minister, that's just not the case. Uh, you know, Richard, the thing about this speculation tax is it doesn't seem like from the very moment that it got announced, it has been like stumbling forward on this. Like it's been a struggle to find out what the details actually are. Yes, this tax came out in February of 2018. So it was well more than a year ago it came into effect. We've seen modifications, changes, exemptions, changes to the percentage for people that live in Alberta, for locals. Like there's been some substantive changes on the tax. And then this negative billing option was just adding on top of that. I think if you look at polling, people are strongly in favor of this tax if it's applied correctly. Right. And ensuring that we catch those who are using BC, you know, to, to make money, using the housing market to make money. I think people believe that's wrong. But, you know, the province has gone about this the wrong way. And it's often catching people who are older, who don't have computers, and who are just sort of generally concerned and confused about the way this process is going. Okay, so essentially the deadline is technically Sunday. Yes. But you will have a couple of gimmies after that. You will all the way until June or July, but the reminder is get your speculation tax done so the province doesn't have to pester you. We still don't know the cost of the administration, so you may be costing taxpayers just a little bit if you don't do it because somebody's going to be, you know, have the handle getting you to fill out your declaration. So go out and do it by April 1st if you have to.
Okay, sounds good. Now, Richard, before I let you go, can I ask you a fun yeah. question? Of course. I, I love fun questions, Simi. You know that. I know. That's why I'm asking you. Well, who is the best Batman? Was it Ben Affleck, Christian Bale, Michael Keaton, or Adam West? Michael Keaton. Thank you. I agree with you. My childhood. Yes. I think by far he's the best Batman. Well, apparently- before they gave him all this extra armor and like this was just Batman to the core, I think. Yes. I yeah. agree. We're running this as our hot question debatable. of the day. It is apparently because we're in third place. Okay. So we got to get people. I'm going to go retweet it now and we'll get some people <laughs> to get on our side soon. Thank you for that, Richard. I knew I could count on you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Have a good weekend. You. Yeah, you too. Thanks. That is Richard Zessman, our global news legislative reporter from Victoria and also on my side on this Batman poll. Did you know it is halibut season? Yes, it is. So if we're going to talk halibut, how important it is, how good it is, the things that we can make with it. Well, then we have to have Karen McSherry here from the Gourmet Warehouse because she's going to help us out with that. Hi, Karen. Hi. Is this your favorite fish? It, it indeed is. Halibut? Halibut. And, and of all the parts of the halibut, steaks, fillet, blah, 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 my favorite are cheeks. Halibut cheeks. Here's the thing. We have a very spirited debate at my house that when it's fish and chips time, I prefer halibut fish and chips. Always. But at my house, there are others. And cod. I'm not saying it's because they're from Newfoundland. I'm just <laughs> saying they are big on the cod fish and chips. But I believe halibut makes the best fish and chips. Agreed, 100%. Thank Slam you. dunk. Okay, I can move in. <laughs> I, you get my vote. <laughs> and so this is halibut season, right? Yes. Halibut season started on March the 15th. And even I was surprised it runs completely all the way through to November the 14th. Oh. So it's in prime right now. And as it sort of tail ends, it gets less and less. But right now it is high season and it is delicious. And and if you see it when it's been sold previously frozen and all of that, you can see how beautiful and bright and glossy it is. So we'll run over sort of what to look for, what to be careful with and then where they can go for far more information. But we have some great giveaways. We're going to be doing that, that. So you got to stay tuned. Yeah. There's a half hour. Karen's got some amazing prizes to give away. Uh, but do you love, like, what's your favorite way of cooking halibut? I do it two ways. I, I If I'm doing um, like halibut filet, I will rub it with a little bit of wasabi mustard and then uh, pe- pat it with panko crumbs and then in a hot pan, sear it. Wasabi and, mustard. Wait, wait, yeah, whoa, whoa. Where does that come from? Little, oh, gourmet work. House, of course. Stupid question. You walked into that. I totally did. So can you do Dijon? You could do Dijon. It's You don't have to have the wasabi, but I always think the wasabi goes with a little something, something, right? And then panko, um, a hot pan, a hot nonstick pan, don't put it, and then a very little bit of oil, sear on both sides, and then fire it in your oven for about 10 minutes so it evenly keeps crispy on all sides, and then serve it with whatever... I like halibut that is like barely done. Barely done. So then you will like this recipe that we're going to do today. And then also I did it last night um, with uh, capers, lemon, and then I just lightly mm. dusted the halibut with a flour or, or rice flour. And then in the pan, the lemons caramelize. As soon as they're caramelized, pick them up, squeeze them all over the halibut, and you're done. Yum. Parsley finished. You have dinner literally in six minutes. That's not even the recipe that you brought with us today. That's no, just like a bonus thing you just told That's a bonus us. thing because it's three ingredients and five minutes. What was it again? It was halibut, lemons. Capers. Capers. 
That's it. So what do you do? Just run me through that very quickly. Okay, so you're going to dredge, lightly dredge um, in rice flour if you're celiac or flour flour, and then shake off the excess. Heat a fry pan up, a little bit of olive oil in, throw in a couple tablespoons of capers and cut four lemons in half and put the cut side down in the pan. And then when the pan starts to warm up, in goes the halibut, about two to three minutes each side. It will become beautiful and golden brown. No liquid, no wine, no water, no chicken stock. Just let that fry. Flip the fish over. By the time you flip that fish over, those lemons are now golden brown. Pick them up, squeeze them all over the halibut, and dinner's done. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That sounds so So good. So rice, I like to serve forbidden rice with halibut because it's so good. Is that the black rice? Yeah, it's great. You really like that. Because you can't ruin it. It's so good. You don't need a rice cooker. In fact, I remember I had it. I I think I made this last year when we did halibut season. Yes. And it was like the best meal. It was so delicious. so good. So that's super easy. The one I that's on... NW's um, line um, website website and mine is um, a little bit more complicated, but you know what? This Go one's easy. Really this good is too. easy. Yeah. I just had a food flashback actually while you were talking. You're right. I made that Karen McSherry halibut and forbidden rice recipe a year ago. It was delicious. I'm going to make it again. It's like my favorite. Although now I think we're going to have to do this new recipe that you brought. So you said you like halibut cheeks. Why is that? And what are halibut cheeks? Halibut cheeks are literally the cheeks of the halibut. And they can be as small as like a one inch diameter, or they can be as large as your hand, even bigger. Oh. You know, because I'm going to, fishermen out there are going to go, you don't know what you're talking about. They can be (laughs) huge, but the huge ones don't get. They're a little stringier. Yeah, they're very stringy. So, Think of kind of like the texture, the string of like a short rib. When you pull a short rib apart, it's stringy. Halibut cheeks are stringy. They don't have the flakiness that the filet has. But they're so tender and sweet. They're actually sweet. And they're wonderful. I love the cheeks. And they're harder to find because they're a little bit esoteric. People don't, they kind of shy away. I don't know what to do. So they step away from the cheeks. But they're delish. They sound delish. And so if you get, what is the size you're actually looking for? I, I kind of like them, the, the palm size of your hand. Okay. And not a man, a big big man's hand palm, a lady's hand palm. So okay. that they're, they're, they're manageable. Reasonable size. They're tur- easily to turn. You don't want a big, okay. huge. Do you have to ask for these sometimes? Or uh, do you think most seafood stores will have this? Uh, most seafood stores will have them. The good ones, the, you know, they'll have them. Um, but they'll, they'll be in their case. Right. Just right. ask for them. I'm yeah. looking for halibut cheeks? cheeks. Oh, no, but I can get them next week. Great. Come back and get them yeah. next week. Okay. So then what are we doing with this recipe? So this recipe is leeks. Ooh, um, I like leeks. Yeah. Leeks. And you're going to saute leeks in olive oil with capers. And do you have it up? Uh, I have it right in front okay. of me. Would you like me to tell yeah, you what it that'd is? that'd be great. She doesn't I'd... have a computer in front of her. I do. <laughs> so I can tell her. So you heat up some oil, a couple tablespoons of olive oil in a saute pan, and then you add one medium leek. And you've specified in this recipe, white part only, finely sliced. Why? I love the pale green parts. Well, you can only go so far as it's tender because you can't. when you cook it, you can't get that part tender. It will be chewy. And the last thing you want is the chewy bits of the leek. Great for soup, great for anything yeah. like that, but not in a delicate dish like this. You don't want to be kind of gnawing on a bit of hard leek. <laughs> no, you're exaggerating. You don't <laughs> gnaw on hard leek. The light green, the very pale green it's parts okay. are delicious. Yeah, you can go until it's really hard and don't use the rest. Yeah, I don't use that part. No. All right. Okay. See, I'm, I would include in there the okay. pale green parts as well. Face uh, off. <laughs> one, small, <laughs> one small garlic clove. Do you mince that? Yes, what do mince you do? it. Okay. Mince the garlic. 
I have to just add on a side note here. I'm totally going to digress. The other day, I made a recipe out of Lydia Bastianich's cookbook yes. about how to master Italian cooking. Yes. And this recipe called for slicing the garlic very thin. I like that too. It was genius. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I'd ever done that because so I always good. do the smash and mince, yeah, right? Slicing smash and awesome. Mince. So this time I carefully sliced it very thinly. It was genius and it mm-hmm. was delicious. And you can also slice it on your microplaner. Oh yeah, and then just mind that. your fingers, but slice it, and then it's paper thin, and it, it was, cooks in like it was a lovely. second. It Good. was lovely, so right. I do recommend that for people who haven't tried that either. Okay, so you do that. You add your leek into the oil with the garlic and the chicken stock, which is about a, just a little tiny teaspoon, mm-hmm. right? You just want to create a little sauce. Okay, so you toss that, you cook that for about a minute, and to that you then add a third of a cup of white wine, ten to twelve cherry tomatoes that have been halved, and about a third of a cup chopped fresh parsley and a teaspoon of fresh thyme. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And cook that down, lid on till it softens, till the tomatoes soften. Lid off to get rid of the excess liquid. It will be saucy. Set it aside. Fry your halibut and then put that. I like to. I don't like to put sauces on top of things. I like to put a bed so that right. the halibut is that, that lovely browned, crispy finish mm. is sitting on top. And so you put the sauce down and then lay the halibut on. Okay, so the halibut thing, you said the same thing. Dredge it in a little bit of flour, shake it off, a little salt and pepper, heat up your oil in your non-stick pan. So it doesn't tear. Right. And then once the pan is sizzling, make sure the pan is really hot, add your halibut, brown it on both sides, boom, done. Done. Top of the sauce. So easy. Stick it on a plate. Yeah, eat a lot of halibut right now. I'm totally going to eat a lot of halibut I went to um, the most amazing fish talk. Ned Bell, as we know, is the champion of everything ocean-wise. And I've been to the salmon talk and I went to the halibut talk and I was absolutely dumbfounded that it is so managed and it is so purposefully careful careful, that every single fish that they pull out of the water has a tag on it when they go to hand it over when they're getting paid or paid out or how that portion of it works. All these family boats have tags and they're tagged and and they can trace every single fish. I am so buying halibut today. It is just unbelievable how careful they manage this and and how they care about the future and where it goes. Um, if this is an amazing stat that Canada's quota is 5.10 million pounds and that's dressed weight and dressed weight is gutted head off. Really? So 5.10 million pounds and that's it. Karen McSherry is with us. We are talking halibut season. And I just, you reminded me, Karen, in the commercial break here that the last time we talked to you, you were stranded in some airport somewhere because of the whole Boeing Max Max 8 thing. Yeah. What happened? How did you get home? Well, it was delayed, delayed. Air Canada canceled. Then, you know, what are you going to do? How do you get home? Oh, we'll send you home through Denver. Well, that's like five hours away driving. I'm going to drive to Denver so I can fly to Vancouver. Really? So that was the only what? offer they had for you was yeah, if you can get to Denver, it. we can get That's you home. That's it. That's it. And you know what? I guess I just tried to take it to the other side and say, I wasn't on that Ethiopian flight. So That's true. thanks, but no thanks. I'll find another way. You should have called me. I would have driven down and gotten you. Perfect. I love that road trip. Love that road trip down to California. You love road oh, trips? I love oh. road trips. I also love that particular road trip. It's I've so, done it so many so times. Pretty. It's so beautiful. Anyway, we digress. We are talking halibut season yes. here. And you had some very interesting stats for us. So what you want to look for, so we, you all got that Canada is a huge... Pr- we're yes. so... Our fishermen and their family-owned boats are so dedicated to 
preserving and being ocean wise and 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 they are fantastic and 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 I want you to go to wildpacifichalibut.com for more because there's a full video that Ned does um and there's all the information and you can see how proud and how they are protecting this species which is great but what you want to look for um is clean looking fish that right. smells like the ocean. It it, it will have it's very a very glossy too, it, yeah, right? Firm, glossy, fresh flesh. Yeah. And and it what you don't buy if it's open. So think of the of of, of the fish and if it's sort of opening, that means it's old. The fish is pulling away. Right. Or obviously if it's sort of brown and tingy because halibut is pure white. It is white and translucent. It should look pristine. And like when you see yeah. Healthy fish at the store or like good looking fish that's fresh, you, you know, you can tell. Yes. And and if it's sitting in water, yeah, no. s- see you later, bye. Because that first <laughs> thing is it's previously frozen. But you know what? Have a fishmonger that you love, that you go to all the time and you trust and you're their regular and they'll never sell you things that are inferior. And, and don't jump around and, you know, don't buy it covered in in saran wrap at the supermarket. That's just absolutely a hard no. It always has to be open and breathing and fresh and sitting on ice. So it's like broil, barbecue, fry, poach, steam. Like everything is open to this fish. Good. Okay. It's so delicious and there's so many ways to serve it. Okay. And do you cook it skin on, skin off? I cook it, if I'm barbecuing, skin on because I put the skin side down on the barbecue and I don't turn it. But if I'm in doing it the way we were talking, I will take the skin off because halibut skin is really thick. Oh, it is. It's like you're not... Pulling that, trying to get that off is... uh, It's It's difficult. And tell us about the giveaway. What did you bring here? Okay, so... Rob Clark, who's like my number one love love from the fish counter on Main Street, has generously given us a $50 gift certificate uh, for halibut. And in this gift uh, box, we've got olive oil and pasta and capers to make the recipe. There's Halibut Association has given us an apron. I've thrown in some um, a, a sauce, a marinating sauce, and it's all in this lovely little tin bucket. So wow. The hundred, $100 value easily. Easy. Easy. And you get to go meet Rob Clark and tell him we sent you because Simi and I both love him. And then we have... <laughs> I don't know how, that, how much that's going to get you there, but yeah, okay, but, give well, it a okay. shot. We share give it a shot. Love. We'll share see. the love. <laughs> and then we've got two additional halibut aprons so that when you're cooking in your halibut apron, it will just automatically make whatever you do turn out perfectly. Okay, so we've got a grand prize then, this gift basket worth easily more than $100. More than $100. More than $100. That includes a $50 gift card to buy yourself some halibut from the fish counter. And the Gourmet Warehouse has always provi- also provided olive oil, marinade, capers, pasta apron, you name it. This is all wrapped up in one basket. Yeah. And then two runner-ups are going to each, or should I say runners-up, sorry, will each get an apron from Wild Pacific Halibut. So, if you're up for this, let's go. Caller number three we are going to say 604-280-9898. So, oh my goodness, you should see how fast that phone lit up. 604-280-9898 for this fantastic giveaway. Uh, you have inspired me to make some halibut. What do you think about like chowder using halibut? Mm-hmm, but don't use it. Use it when it's 
you know, you've, you've bought maybe more than you needed and, and it's been sitting there for two days, right? then use chowder. Don't, don't take this pristine, perfect, wonderful fish that wants to be cooked in two minutes each side and put it into a chowder. I find that the chowder fish is always the fish that I've put in the freezer. That's exactly what you use. Yes. <laughs> that's like, the oh, one that I have found fish in my freezer. I better make, make some chowder. chowder. That's yes. what you do with salmon, with halibut, with anything. That's okay. the fish that you make chowder with. Not, not right now when it's just gloriously beautiful. And do you like the filet or do you prefer the halibut steak? I like the filet because the bones in halibut are really big and be very careful. They're big bones. They're not little pin bones. But if you get the filet, you yeah. should be okay, yeah. right? Oh, Most yeah. Of the this, ones that- they're gone. But run your fingers. Don't be shy to run your fingers down the belly side because that's where the – if it hasn't been What cleaned. I love about this is that Karen is being very physically demonstrative <laughs> and she's running it over her own stomach. And I'm like, I don't know. And don't, you'll don't feel the bones the and then just pull them yes. out. Okay? Make okay. sure you do that the, because like – Pins, um, fish tweezers, like or the little fish tweezers. It's cute. You probably have fish tweezers. I was thinking needle nose pliers, but okay, yeah, yeah that'll that work works too. too. Home <laughs> hardware, <laughs> needle nose, whatever works. What kind of pasta did you put in here, by the way? I put in a. It's actually a new one. It's it's um, it's wild garlic and green pea because I thought because it's green, it would look great with the white halibut. It's green pasta, so it's not like spinach pasta. No, green pea and garlic. That's delicious. Yeah. I've never had that before. No. Not even when I make my own pasta have I tried that before. Oh, just while you're before you light that yeah. up, I just want to do our seventh annual chocolate charity is May second. Again, all the big headliners: Thomas Haas, Greg Hook, Stephen, Christoph, love it. All the boys: um, Jeffrey Kale, everybody, Dan Deluc, Denny from the Okanagan, all coming to cook for kids in the East Side. Um, May second, seventy-five bucks. Program? This, this is, is a backpack firefighters uh, snack for kids and Project Chef. Okay, and we're sorry, run. How much does it cost? Seventy-five dollars. And what do people get? They get to eat all the creations from these chefs. And then they get to cruise all the food stations. Yum. Uh, we've got multiple food stations, sliders from Carderos. We've got wine Delish. bars. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And a great, great, great auction. And where can people find out more information? Uh, Gourmet Warehouse. You can buy online. Okay. Sounds good, Karen. Thank you. And don't forget, it's halibut season. You can check that out at your local seafood store. We are into the second week of the Alberta election campaign, and it has certainly been interesting, right? And lots of negative campaigning issues that have come up. We thought we would check back in uh, with our guest, Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at Mount Royal University. He's also one of the editors of the anthology Orange Chinook, Politics in the New Alberta. Welcome back, Dwayne. Good afternoon. How has it been going? What's been happening in the campaign? You know, in one respect, it's been, you know, a traditional campaign. The leaders are out on tours and making uh, announcements and promises every single day. But it seems to have gotten um, sidetracked um, largely around Jason Kenney and the issue of LGBT. BTQ uh, issues. Right. I saw um, this come up and it seems like like they announced it like, and they're the ones yeah, who brought it up. But, but you have to put the setup. So okay. the first week of the campaign, the NDP put out an ad um, of a speech that Jason Kenney gave in 2000 as a um, Canadian Alliance MP where he was talking about some of the stuff that he did as a young man at the University of San Francisco back in 1989 and, and 1990, where he is bragging about stopping 
same-sex benefits in San Francisco in that time period. And there's this little smirk at the end of the uh, at the end of the quote. And they then the NDP took that ad and then turned it into a 10-minute ad uh, that went into detail with people in there. And then there was an expose by Sprawl Calgary, which is a a startup online newspaper. They sent a reporter down to San Francisco. He got the op-eds that Kenny wrote at the time and uh, some CNN clips of Kenny and interviews with some of Kenny's opponents. And it forced Kenny to, to respond by saying, you know, that was 30 years ago. My views have evolved. I, I, I regret some of the things that I did at the time, but that's a long time ago. It doesn't really matter. But it, it primed the issue. And then a couple days ago, in his announcement on education policy, he promised to change um, gay-straight alliances, which was a, um, has been a simmering political issue in Alberta for a number of years uh, involving uh, these uh, clubs at schools. Right. And the NDP brought in legislation that would have applied it to all schools, whether they were public schools, Catholic schools, private schools, they put requirements that if a student asked for a club, the principal had to immediately do one, um, that they could not notify parents about their participation in these clubs. So there was a whole set of, of regulations and rules. And Kenny opens up this can of worms again by saying they're going to go back to the old PC legislation. Ooh. Um, back in uh, 2014, and that sparked protests. There was an immediate protest that the next day in the legislature in Edmonton, and then there was a subsequent protest in, in Calgary last night. So this issue, um, he he's put back on there because there remain people very concerned that the episodes of, of 1990 have not disappeared and that there is a problem that he's got with gay rights. Okay, so that clearly, they opened that one up, though, by saying that. Uh, on their own, yeah. and, and that I can't understand. Now, I know there are segments of very strong religious conservatives within the UCP that were looking for something. But they're going to vote for I, you anyway, aren't they? Yes, exactly. And I think Kenny could have sort of nodded and winked to them, says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. I'm just not going to say it during the election. But once the election's over, then I'll make these changes. So I guess we can give um, some points for, for Kenny for being open and, and up front. Um, but it, it created a, a massive uh, backlash. No kidding. So has any of this impacted the polls? What's been going we on there? We don't know. We haven't seen poll numbers for this week. Um, to, to determine if it has, because it, it's just one of a series of things that seems to be tripping up the Kenny campaign. So there is this collusion story that I, I mentioned right. the last time I was on the air. More and more details are coming out about that. Um, so the latest was another person has been charged with illegal donations of, of giving the Callaway team money that wasn't his. So now there's six people that um, have been fined. We know it's in the hands of the RCMP. Um, right. M McLean's did another piece yesterday where they interviewed one of the people who, who legally donated money, 
And he did it in the hopes that he was going to get a job with Kenny once this was all done. Right. You know, that he was working for a political action committee and basically he had to take his first month's salary and donate it to Jeff Calloway. And so it's an interesting insider account, not of an illegal donation, but a legal donation and showing the linkages between Kenny Calloway and these political action committees. Okay. So there's been that and then the removal of two candidates. Um, The UCP had two candidates who had to withdraw over social media posts that were white nationalists and um, uh, anti-transgendered people. So a whole bunch of controversies have have caught up the UCP. We just don't know if it'll impact the election. Let's talk about the other side here as well, though. The NDP seem to be running a very negative campaign, right, where everything seems to be directed at undermining Jason Kenney, Jason Kenney, Jason Kenney. What about their accomplishments? Like, are they running on their record? What are they, like, what else is Very little. They're, yeah. they're not really talking about that. And the real focus has been on Kenny. Now, they have rolled out some promises around building more schools, $25 a day daycare, a new highway to, to Fort McMurray. But it's almost like they're acting as an opposition party yeah. where they're making promises going forward and they're attacking the other leader, but there's no discussion of what has what happened over the last four years. Yeah. And the UCP will respond. It's because it's an indefensible record. I, I don't think that's completely the case. I think they could talk about you know, the bad hand that they were dealt with the economy Absolutely. when they got here, that you know the steps that they took... Um, didn't rectify it, but they. Wow. it would have been a lot worse if they had cut spending. And on the issue of the pipeline, they're getting closer. It's not quite there. But that's a long conversation. Yeah. And instead, they're fixated on vote for us because Jason Kenney's a horrible person. I just, I don't understand that. But Dwayne, you know what? We'll check in with you next week and see how it's going. Okay. Talk to you later. Thank you so much. That's Dwayne Brad, Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University. You know, for a lot of people, that music right there is the ultimate Batman. And the thing is, we've all been watching it for many, many years. Tomorrow, Batman is turning 80 years old. 19, can you believe that? 1939, last time. The first time he ever appeared in Detective Comics was so long ago, it was even before the Second World War. And yet here you have this character that remains so... Uh, relevant to people in pop culture today. Still, we have these movies. Still, we have these cartoons. Still, we have these comics. What is it about Batman that makes that character stay so relevant to all of us out there? Why does it still captivate us? That's what we're going to talk about with our next guest. Paul Zaris with us, a University of Victoria neuroscientist, also the author of Chasing Captain America, How Advances in Science, Engineering, and Biotechnology Will Produce a Superhuman. Hi, Paul. Hi, Sammy. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks very much for joining us to talk about this. I take it you are a Batman fan. Yeah, and my first book was Becoming Batman uh, back uh, 11 years ago. So I wrote about him as a hero back then and the science behind what it might take to become the Cape Crusader. You mean somebody could actually do that? Well, not really, no. Uh, <laughs> but you can do parts of it. And that's the thing about a superhero like like Batman. He, he's pitched as a human being, right? As we all are human beings. So we, we see bits of ourselves in him and... And some of the stuff that Batman does, you know, you can achieve. It's just you can't really become the whole package. And do you think that is what makes a difference then between, say, Batman versus Superman, where Superman really had superpowers, but Batman is a regular person, albeit with a lot of money, though, who gave himself those powers? 
Yeah, if you if you look at the history, like you were just talking about, and you go back to the 30s, and you you read interviews of the writers and the and the artists and fans over the years, one thing comes out of all that, and that is that people identify with Batman as being a human. Maybe not all the things Batman does they want to do, but they they see that he's been somebody who just with sweat and effort and a, a bit of time, you know, did something to improve himself to get some skills. And people see, you know, hey, that inspires me. Maybe I could do some of that. Or at least I could think people are capable of some pretty amazing things if they just work at it. Is it that Batman seems more approachable to us? I think so. I mean, uh, no offense to Superman or, you know, Wonder Woman or these other characters who have, you know, gods or born on another planet to give them powers. They give us lots of good things and good stories and empowerment role models, but they're not humans. Um, Whereas Batman is and always has been pitched as this human being who, as it turns out, needed like crazy genetic profile and, as you say, money and so on to do everything. But again, a human being, which means, you know, we think maybe we could do some of those things, too. Right. And with a backstory that perhaps appeals to us, like with that tragedy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one of those things where you buy right in to this idea of a character that you have sympathy for and is engaging. And of course, you know, Superman's backstory was, you know, his parents died, too, or theoretically back on Krypton. But he didn't really know about it. You know, it wasn't they weren't killed in front of him the way we have this horrific backstory for uh, for Batman, I think that draws a lot of people in. Uh, there's sympathy, there's compassion, there's um, engagement because we see various aspects of you know our own lives and things that have happened to Batman. When did, when is it? Do you think that these comic book characters, these superheroes, took a more serious turn, took a more darker turn? Because we were thinking about like the Adam West Batman that was very campy. That was there's a lot of comedy involved in that. But what we see and what we certainly have seen over the last thirty years is much darker. Yeah. Uh, Interestingly, though, if you actually read all the stuff or you go back, he started off super dark. Like Batman, the Joker, like all these things, they were like really evil and really nasty things going on. Then into the 50s, uh, it shifted a bit because things were supposed to be a little bit more light. And there was the comic book code that came out and all these things. And they shifted to a bit more fun stories. Then it got a bit darker again. Then when the when the show came around, it transformed the comics because they all became campy. And then going into the, the 70s again, things started to shift back towards uh, a more darker kind of origin, which, as you point out, we're still seeing now. Um, maybe too dark in some cases, I would say, for some of the stories, but it is actually quite close to where it started. Yeah, recently, I would say, like, even the Christian Bale series, that was a lot darker than even the Michael Keaton ones. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, they give you a very different take on on, on Batman. Um, one of the things about the, the, the Christopher Nolan trilogy with Christian Bale is it, re- it really is very faithful homage to a lot of those darker storylines that it really reflected, you know, the whole idea of this real vigilante Avenger, you know, doing all these things that, that was in the comics as well. So um, I don't know if that's reflecting society too, because I think that happens too, where uh, art mimics life and back and forth. Yeah, I wonder if we kind of delve into the psychology of this as well, Paul. Is there something about the Batman character that we all have another side to us too, that is hidden away from everybody? Yeah, I think there is a bit of that, you know, because you literally have the alter ego idea of of somebody who's got, and and the debate all the time and people who study this is is who is the alter ego? Is it Batman or is it Bruce Wayne? Um, But you've got this idea of somebody underneath doing some things or exploring, you know, darker sides or more powerful or more successful or, or a different side. And I think, I think in some ways it almost fits the, the kind of 
vicarious experience that people have when they watch sports, right? They, they see themselves as the player. They endorse the team or they're following whatever, and they see the success or the failure, and they, they go with that. And I think that also happens in the psychology around you know, almost embodying the character you see in somebody like Batman. Right. The Batman character I find so fascinating because 80 years old, but yet the story, the origin story, the gadgets, all of that, that, that part of it, the essence of the character has remained unchanged during that time. Yeah, it really is uh, fascinating. And, and as you point out, and I think it, it speaks to what you were talking about earlier, that the power of this character is so strong, is so engaging that it, it literally is timeless. It's like an evergreen concept that um, we'll always have this idea that people always want to do more than we can. So Batman's always going to fill that sort of box to check off. And he's got that tragic backstory, which engages us. And that's always going to be there. And then the idea with, you know, some of the uh, technological adaptations, things we're always fascinated by that too. So um, you throw in the other point you made about, you know, thinking about exploring things that we might not do in our, in our whatever alter ego we have. Yeah. Um, and he's always going to be engaging. Now, Paul, I have to ask you, because we're asking a lot of people this question today, who is your favorite Batman? Well, I have to have one, do I? I can't. I, well, the four choices that we here. gave people is that our criteria for this was that you, it, they had to have played Batman more than once. And we're looking at like movies or television, not voice actors. So oh, okay, the choices okay, were uh, Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Ben Affleck, and Adam West. <laughs> You're skewing the results a little bit if that's how you're presenting them, by the way. <laughs> we had them written um, out. I wasn't, I wasn't presenting them like that. So what's, who would you um, say is I, the uh, best? I def- for me, I'm a Christian Bale fan. Are you? Um, I, I just, I really thought, uh, with the exception, I thought the voice thing was a little bit odd. Like he really went to the yeah. other registers he didn't need to do. But um, I thought the portrayal and the way the character was shown, and then he's embodied in that as the, the sort of actor, I really found that engaging. And for me, he's by far my favorite uh, actor for Batman. I'm always amazed. What amazes me about this character is that every time you hear there's like, oh, a new person coming out playing Batman, you're like, what, another one again? And then you watch it and you go, hey, that was pretty good. Or you might not think that for some of them. <laughs> now, see, now you're talking about Ben Affleck there, aren't you? <laughs> did I give it away? Yeah, uh, yeah you did. <laughs> I have to say, at least uh, Ben Affleck wasn't the worst thing about the movie he was in. But um, yeah, I, 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 I think that the, we all have sympathies for some of these different actors and characters. Um, some of them are better than worse. I know you didn't have Val Kilmer on there. Well, you, one there, time. He only played it once, right? That's true. Yeah, good point. But I, I just thought that the representation we saw with, with Bale was just very honest portrayal of what the real character, for me at least, represents. And then, and then the way it was written and, and directed, it was just the films themselves were captivating, I thought, as well. You clearly like superheroes, right? Because you study them. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, I'm a neuroscientist who studies how we walk around and how we can get better after stroke and so on. But I got into that because my mom liked comic books. She was born in the golden age of comics and she read all the original Batman and Superman. She gave that love to me. That's what got me interested in martial arts. That's what got me into science. So all these things kind of connect together. And so there's kind of a nice sort of uh, symmetry to all this stuff that keeps me engaged over the years. Did your mom keep any of those comic books, Paul? Because that'd, they'd be worth a fortune. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, of course. Sadly, she did not. Oh, yes. too bad. I'm sorry about that. But Paul, no thank, you, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for your interest. That's Paul Zare, who's a University of Victoria neuroscientist, 
also has a love of superheroes, though, and has been studying them as well. He's the author of a book about becoming Batman. His latest is also called Chasing Captain America, How Advances in Science, Engineering, and Biotechnology Will Produce a Superhuman, which is kind of cool, right?